Hey everybody, it's me, DK Williams. And if you're interested in sponsoring our work here at The Law, that would mean a lot to all of us. And if there's a particular case you'd like us to cover, we can do that. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com about sponsorships and that will help us continue this project about which we all care so much. Now, hit the music. Welcome to The Law with DK Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to The Law. I am DK Williams, and this is episode 81, Bostock versus Clayton County. This is another landmark case that came out earlier this year, just uh, less than two months ago, June 15th, 2020. It was a 6-3 decision written by Trump's appointee, Neil Gorsuch, that held the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and its prohibition against discrimination by private employers, quote, because of such individuals' race, color, religion, sex, that's the important part for this case, or national origin, that that prohibition against discrimination because of, quote, unquote, sex, that's the word used, that includes a prohibition on discriminating against someone because of their homosexuality or transgender status. Now, how in the world would a Trump appointee write such an opinion? Well, like Clarissa, we'll explain it all. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. Go to uh, speakeasyideas.com slash the law for all of these podcasts and just search for Speakeasy Ideas on your favorite podcast listening app. Follow this podcast on social media, Twitter at the law DKW, and on Facebook.com slash the law with DK Williams. I'd love to come and talk with one of your groups or your classes or be involved in some of your cool projects. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. Likewise, contact Bethany if you'd like to contribute to our work here at the law with DK Williams via a sponsorship. Now let's jump into this thing. Now, if this podcast was a college course, there would be some prerequisites to studying this case, Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia. These other cases are important to understand how we got here, why Gorsuch wrote this opinion. The first prerequisite would be episode five of the law, where we covered Wickard versus Filburn. Wickard is the Supreme Court case from 1942 that held that Congress constitutional power to regulate interstate commerce also gave Congress the power to regulate intrastate non-commerce. I'm not making that up. Go listen to episode five for more detail on how that happened. And with that decision, the concept of a federal government with only specific listed powers was destroyed. Literally, it was destroyed. The second prerequisite would be the Heart of Atlanta case, which we covered in episode nine. In that 1964 case, which you might have noticed is the same year of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Heart of Atlanta case, Supreme Court case, said that the Commerce Clause gave Congress the authority to regulate the business practices of a local privately owned motel. That was the Heart of Atlanta motel. The very same clause we are discussing in this Bostock case, Title VII, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, was at issue in the Heart of Atlanta case. But in the Heart of Atlanta case, it was about race. And in this case, it's about sex and what that includes. The owner of the Heart of Atlanta motel was a racist, not a good guy. He refused to rent rooms in his motel to black folks. 
horrible. The Constitution, however, does not authorize Congress to regulate horrible people. It gives Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce, but in this Supreme Court unanimous decision, part of Atlanta, they applied Wickard, which started it all, and said Congress had the power to regulate the business practices of a local, privately owned motel. The Supreme Court's ruling meant that this motel had to rent rooms to black folks, and that is no doubt the philosophically just outcome. Racism is insidious, and it should be fought. But that fact doesn't change the words of the Constitution and the authority it grants to Congress. Now, you might think, hey, Congress should have that authority. May I'll listen to that argument all day long. Maybe you're right, but they don't, not legitimately. And if they're going to have that power, let's give it to them legitimately because there's a process to do that, as hard as it might be. But once we start allowing the court to amend the Constitution, that is not a place I think any of us should want to go. Because if they have the power to do what you want them to do, because it's just or moral or philosophically good, another set of justices might come to a different conclusion. And the final arbiter of that is not supposed to be the United States Supreme Court. It's one of those things where you have to be careful what you wish for. And on a bigger scale, what is progress? I've asked this before. Progressives, as many of them call themselves today, one might think they would be in favor of progress. Now, what is progress? We have to contemplate this if that's what we want. And I do. I want progress. Is threatening a racist motel owner with government force shutdown, and if he doesn't cooperate, government guns, is that progress? And maybe in 1964 it was, because there's no other way to get him and other people to rent rooms. I'm not talking about constitutionally appropriate. I'm just talking about the concept of progress. So maybe guns were needed in 1964 to get people like the Heart of Atlanta Motel owner to not be racist and to discriminate against black people. That might have been progress. I'm not going to argue. Yeah, okay, it was for the sake of argument. But isn't changing the minds, changing the hearts, the hatred of racists even a better outcome? Isn't that more progressive or is insisting on the guns progressive? Because now, 50 years after the Heart of Atlanta Motel case, there are plenty of places where you might be able to get a gay wedding cake. And yet some people insist on, no, we have to have the government threat of guns so every bakery will make a gay wedding cake. But the situation in 2020 is nothing like it was in Atlanta in 1964. So what progress are we looking for? I submit that fewer government guns is progress, and we should encourage activities that do not require government force. But people have different opinions on that, and I'll let you all decide. So given Wickard and the Heart of Atlanta case, I submit that the court was correct in this Bostock case. A prohibition on private companies discriminating because of sex applies to the three plaintiffs in Bostock. And we'll look at the court's language, Gorsuch language, because he wrote it, to see how the court makes this point. And before we get there, this ties back in with Wickard as well and the evisceration of the enumerated powers in the Constitution, the only legitimate authority the federal government has. I want to make this point. Constitution is mentioned, the word Constitution, is mentioned only once in the 15-page majority opinion here written by Gorsuch. And here is where it is mentioned. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, and this is where the word Constitution is mentioned in the majority opinion that the court has decreed to be the law. We, the Supreme Court, are also deeply concerned with preserving the promise of the free exercise of religion enshrined in our Constitution. That guarantee, the court continues, lies at the heart of our pluralistic society, but worries about how Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, may intersect with religious liberties are nothing new. They even predate the statute's passage. 
the Civil Rights Act's passage. So they're acknowledging this is a potential issue. But that issue isn't before the Supreme Court in this case. And they dismiss that concern by noting, I'm quoting the court again, Congress included an express statutory exception for religious organizations. So that issue wasn't before the court, but they mentioned it there because it's a concern. But they're saying, hey, don't be too concerned because Congress passed a statute that allows for religious organizations to not have their religious uh, beliefs unduly infringed upon. But why only religious organizations? Doesn't the right to associate apply to all individuals, all individuals, regardless of any individual's religious beliefs? I think tying these legal arguments to religion will have its own set of problems. I'll leave that for another discussion, but ponder on it until then. And I'll note that the word authority is not used in the majority opinion at all, as in, where does Congress get the authority to regulate this conduct? They've already, that's been decided according to the court. You know, the guy sitting on the court right now, and I use guy as a non-gender specific term, like human, human, it's a non-gender specific term. Everyone on the court is just accepting of Wickard. And that's where the authority comes from. Illegitimately, but that's where it comes from. And so that discussion is over. It's not any need to have it anymore in these opinions. And that's unfortunate. So the concept of this constitutional authority eviscerated in 1942 in the Wickard case, so much so that the court doesn't even ask the question about it anymore of the legitimate constitutional authority. In 2020, it's no longer a question. That question was answered over 80 years ago in Wickard, according to the court. We, you and I, however, will ask that question. We will always ask that question because the destruction of the concept of limited federal powers has led us here to a massive regulatory state where the federal government is in every aspect of our daily lives. And that's not how it is supposed to be. Yet here we are. And the Wickard case from 1942 opened the floodgates to that. All right, Bostock was a 6-3 to three decision. As we mentioned, Gorsuch wrote it. He was joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, another Republican appointee, and then the four Democratic appointees, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan. So that's your majority. Samuel Alito wrote a long dissent in which Clarence Thomas joined. Brett Kavanaugh also dissented and wrote his own dissent. So who are the named parties here? There are actually three separate cases from different parts of the country with different facts that have been combined into this one decision. And I actually discussed those cases back in episode 31 while they were still in lower courts, anticipating this potential ruling. So you can go back and check that one out as well for discussion of some of these issues. So Gerald Bostock gets his name on the case. He's listed first. He worked for Clayton County, Georgia. And of course they get their name on it too, but they're probably not as excited about it. The court explains. Gerald Bostock worked for Clayton County, Georgia as a child welfare advocate. Under his leadership, the county won national awards for its work. After a decade with the county, Mr. Bostock began participating in a gay recreational softball league. Not long after that, influential members of the community allegedly made disparaging comments about Mr. Bostock's sexual orientation and participation in the league. Soon, he was fired for conduct unbecoming a county employee. The second plaintiff was Donald Zarda. He, according to the court, worked as a skydiving instructor at Altitude Express in New York. After several seasons with the company, Mr. Zarda mentioned that he was gay and days later was fired. The third case involved Amy Stevens. She uses a non-traditional spelling of Amy. She spells it A-I-M-E-E, which reminded me of the Pure Prairie League song, Amy, which is also spelled non-traditionally, but differently. Pure Prairie League, Amy, is spelled A-M-I-E. But Ms. Stevens, according to the court, worked at RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes in Garden City, Michigan. When she got the job, 
Ms. Stevens presented as a male, but two years into her service with the company, she began treatment for despair and loneliness. Ultimately, clinicians diagnosed her with gender dysphoria and recommended that she begin living as a woman. In her sixth year with the company, Ms. Stevens wrote a letter to her employer explaining that she planned to live and work full-time as a woman after she returned from an upcoming vacation. The funeral home fired her before she left, telling her this is not going to work out. So those are the three plaintiffs. Each of these cases found its way to the Supreme Court, and this decision covers them all. So how does Gorsuch frame the issues here? He starts right off in the opinion. He says, in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Congress outlawed discrimination in the workplace. Again, no discussion of where they get the authority to do that because it's been decided 80 years ago, or at least 60, if we go to Harvard Atlanta. But Congress outlawed discrimination in the workplace on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Today, we, the Supreme Court, must decide whether an employer can fire someone simply for being homosexual or transgender. The answer is clear, according to Gorsuch. An employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. Sex plays a necessary and undisguisable role in the decision, exactly what Title VII forbids. He goes on. Those who adopted the Civil Rights Act back in 1964 might not have anticipated their work would lead to this particular result. And as a quick aside, I guarantee you they were not thinking about this result, and that's a big part of Alito's dissent. But Gorsuch continues, the limits of the drafter's imagination supply no reason to ignore the law's demands when the express terms of a statute give us one answer and extra textual considerations suggest another, it's no contest. Only the written word is the law and all persons are entitled to its benefit. Absolutely correct about only the written word is the law. And Alito bases his dissent on this indisputable fact mentioned here. Congress was not thinking about homosexual or transgender people when it passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And Alito argues in his dissent that the two concepts of sex and homosexuality are distinct from each other. The concept of sex just meant either a man or, or a woman, as used in the act, and had nothing to do with your sexual orientation. That's Alito's argument. He says in 1964, nobody even considered if this would apply to homosexuality or not. And Alito stresses, and this is important because this comes back to this point over and over again in many of these cases. Alito isn't advocating for homosexuals and transgender people to be fired because of their status. He's not doing that. He is saying that the act passed by Congress doesn't apply to them. He mentions that if an employer refused to hire Libras, and I'm a Libra, Firing or not hiring Libras would be stupid and counterproductive and unfair, but the Civil Rights Act doesn't provide Libras any protection. An employer can do that, nor, Alito argues, does it provide protection in these cases to the homosexual plaintiffs and the transgender plaintiff. Remember, the court isn't supposed to make policy. That's true. That's Congress's job. And this case deals with a statute. So whatever the Supreme Court did in this case, Congress can amend the statute and make this Supreme Court decision moot. No matter what the Supreme Court did here, Congress could change it, and they still can. In his dissent, Alito correctly writes, Many will applaud today's decision because they agree on policy grounds with the court's updating of Title VII. 
But the question in these cases is not whether discrimination because of sexual orientation or gender identity should be outlawed. It's not the question. The question is whether Congress did that in 1964. That's a very important concept that so many people don't get. So much of the commentary leading up to the court's decision in this case was about, I can't believe we have to argue about whether or not homosexuals should be protected from discrimination. Well, that policy, as absolutely correct as it may be, isn't what the Supreme Court is supposed to do. Congress is supposed to do that. And Gorsuch, for the majority, says that's what Congress did in 1964. Even if that consequence, the protection of homosexuals and transgender people, if that consequence was unintended, it was still a consequence of what they did and the language they chose. He's saying that even if Congress wasn't contemplating homosexuals in 1964, and they weren't, the language they used in this bill that was passed by the House of Representatives and the Senate and that was signed into law includes them because of the language that passed and was signed into law. And Gorsuch doesn't use the term unintended consequences, but I am. And if unintended consequences was a valid reason to strike a statute, a whole heck of a lot of statutes would be subject to judicial revision. And that would not be a good outcome. Part of what Congress does, they have a lot of power. They have to be careful with what they do because there are always unintended consequences. And that's what we have here, according to the majority, and I agree with them. Gorsuch writes, again, I agree with them, except for the fact that Wickard v. Filburn eviscerated our constitutional structure. Gorsuch writes, This court normally interprets a statute in accord with the ordinary public meaning of its terms at the time of its enactment. After all, only the words on the page constitute the law adopted by Congress and approved by the president. If judges could add to, remodel, update, or detract from old statutory terms inspired only by extra-textual sources and our own imaginations, we would risk amending statutes outside the legislative process reserved for the people's representatives. And we would deny the people the right to continue relying on the original meaning of the law they have counted on to settle their rights and obligations. He's saying it's not for the Supreme Court to fix what Congress meant to do. First of all, we don't know what they meant to do. All we know is the words they put down. And the president signed the bill with those words in it. That's all we know. That's what we're going on. We start talking about extra textual sources. Like, hey, hey, wait a minute. They didn't, they couldn't have meant that. Well, that's what they put down. And that's what we're going with. Gorsuch goes on. The question isn't just what sex meant, the word sex, but what Title VII says about it. Most notably, the statute prohibits employers from taking certain actions because of, that's the language, because of sex. And as this court has previously explained, the ordinary meaning of, because of, is by reason of, or on account of. So we're really getting into these textual discussions about what words mean. He concludes this portion of the argument anyway, of the opinion. It is impossible to discriminate against a person for being homosexual or transgender without discriminating against that individual based on sex. So that's his conclusion. The court's conclusion is that's a vi- and that's clearly a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And let me look at it, or let me explain it this way. If a female employee is married to a man, and that's cool with the employer, but a male is married to a man, that's not cool with the employer, and the employer fires the man, the male employee. The discrimination is because of sex. It's the same conduct. Two separate individual employees are married to a man. Not the same man, you know what I'm saying? They're each married to their own man. But the female employee is not fired for being married to a man. But the male employee is fired for being married to a man. That is discrimination based on sex. That's what the majority is saying. That's what Gorsuch is saying. And I think that's inescapable. And Alito's argument is, well, that's not what they meant. Well, the majority is saying, that's what they said. And that's what we got to go with. 
Court goes on, since 1964, Congress has considered several proposals to add, specifically add, sexual orientation to Title VII's list of protected characteristics. But no such amendment has become law, and Alito makes a deal out of that. Meanwhile, Gorsuch continues, Congress has enacted other statutes addressing other topics that do discuss sexual orientation. This post-enactment legislative history, the employers urge and Alito, should tell us something. Well, indeed it might tell us something, and it might tell us that Congress didn't add sexual orientation to the list of protected classes because Congress already assumed it was included and no amendment was necessary. That's one of the things it might tell us. See, we can't start guessing about things Congress does and doesn't do. We can only go by what they do and the words they choose. Then Gorsuch quotes Scalia because Scalia is considered the king of textualists by many. And Alito also quotes Scalia in his dissent. It's kind of like some battling Scalia quotes. But in the majority, the court says, quoting Scalia, Arguments based on subsequent legislative history, for instance, what Congress didn't do after they passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, arguments based on subsequent legislative history should not be taken seriously, not even in a footnote. So the court's dismissing that argument by quoting Scalia. And both Gorsuch and Alito in his dissent are arguing that they are the real textualist here. Gorsuch is claiming that mantle because the phrase because of sex means because of sex. And Alito saying because of sex at the time the statute was passed did not mean to include homosexuals and transgender persons. Another quote from the court I think applies to this unintended consequences concept, which is what I say the majority has adopted. Court says, but the fact that a statute has been applied in situations not expressly anticipated by Congress does not demonstrate ambiguity. Instead, it simply demonstrates the breadth of a legislative command, which is my point I was making earlier about Congress wields a whole lot of power and they can be careless with the words. And if they're not careful, things will happen they did not even consider. And we can't guess about whether or not they considered it or not. Not effectively. Because this legislative history, if one congressperson, if one congressperson says in an argument, this statute is going to do X, well, argument is about argument. It's about exaggerating either the benefits of something you want to pass or the negative aspects of something you don't want to pass. So what that one guy says is irrelevant. What is relevant is the language that's in the bill that passes and is signed into law. And speaking of policy and how Congress makes policy by passing laws, Gorsuch wrote, the employers, in this case the defendants who fired the respective plaintiffs. The employers are left to abandon their concern for expected applications and fall back to the last line of defense for all failing statutory interpretation arguments. Naked policy appeals. If we were to apply the statute's plain language, they complain, any number of undesirable policy consequences would follow. Nothing wrong with that paragraph by itself. I agree with it. But that entire paragraph is hilarious when compared to last week's episode, episode 80, when we discussed the Electoral College and rogue electors and how the Supreme Court just said this term that electors have to do what they're told. They're just rubber stamps. Well, the Constitution is clear that electors have discretion, but the court didn't like that policy result. They let it erode over 200 years. And that erosion gave the court justification that they claim justification, to rewrite the terms of the Electoral College because they were scared of the policy of electors having discretion. So they consider policy when they want to. They don't want to consider it here, and I think that's good, but they should never consider it. They should never debate policy. Policy debates go on in Congress. 
Federal powers are separated and policy is not part of the judiciary's authority. Back to the court's language. The place to make new legislation or address unwanted consequences of old legislation lies in Congress. Yes, it does. Then they mention this religious argument again. And it's important to note that none of the employers in these cases raised a religious argument. So it's not before the court. But Gorsuch, nevertheless, the court says not to worry because, quote, the Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 prohibits the federal government from substantially, that's an important word, burdening a person's exercise of religion unless it, the government, demonstrates that doing so both furthers a compelling governmental interest and represents the least restrictive means of furthering that interest. Ah, don't get me started on that nonsense. That sentence demonstrates all the reasons why these weighing contests are horrific. We're going to weigh somebody's constitutional right against the governmental interest? What the heck is that? So what's being weighed? You've got the First Amendment, Congress's prohibition on violating your right to free speech, for example, on one hand. And then on the other hand, you've got to weigh a compelling governmental interest. What? Where does that come from? So think about it. The First Amendment can be overridden if the government has a sufficiently compelling interest. And it's the least restrictive means of furthering that interest. That's nonsense on a writs. And it, it happens frequently in Supreme Court jurisprudence. Then the final word on the potential religious argument, and again, it's not before the court here. Of course, it's right. So while other employers in other cases may raise free exercise arguments that would merit careful consideration, none of the employers before us today represent in this court that compliance with Title VII will infringe their own religious liberties in any way. So the court might hear those arguments in the future, but again, why should religion be the key that opens the door to free association? So why should any private actor need to justify his actions based on a religious ground? Free association doesn't require a religious backdrop. The court concludes thusly, and I say thusly in a self-mocking manner, ours is a society of written laws. Judges are not free to overlook plain statutory commands on the strength of nothing more than suppositions about intentions or guesswork about expectations. In Title VII, Congress adopted broad language, making it illegal for an employer, a private employer, to rely on an employee's sex when deciding to fire that employee. We, the Supreme Court, do not hesitate to recognize today a necessary consequence of that legislative choice. An employer who fires an individual merely for being gay or transgender defies the law. So despite the dissent's arguments, which we touched on, and the employer's arguments, the court applies the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to prohibit private employers from firing an employee because the employee is homosexual or transgender because the act says you can't fire someone or discriminate against someone because of sex. And I believe that statutory construction is correct. But only because the Supreme Court destroyed the concept of a limited federal government given specific listed authorities, that concept was destroyed in 1942 in Wickard v. Filburn. And the sad part of this case is that none of the parties and none of the Supreme Court justices even mentioned the lack of legitimate constitutional authority for Congress to regulate intrastate activity. So which of the enumerated powers authorizes this congressional action? Well, none of them do, except that Worker v. Filburn said Congress can do whatever they want under the Commerce Clause. One may wish Congress had legitimate authority to do that, but wishes do not create that authority. <laughs> Unfortunately, Supreme Court can. It's not legitimate, but they created it. 
They created it illegitimately. So check out episode five for more details on Wickard and episode nine for more about the Heart of Atlanta motel case, which first applied the Civil Rights Act to private employers and for more facts about that case. Thank you for joining me. I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 81, Bostock versus Clayton County. We are brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas, as always, and let me know what you think. Twitter at The Law, DKW, and Facebook.com slash The Law with DK Williams. If you'd like to become a sponsor of this podcast, we would love that. Contact Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for details. Until next week, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously. Dangerously.